This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, everyone, welcome back to Fans on the Run. Currently, when this is airing, we will be in double time season. Two episodes a week. I know I am insane because I, you know what? I just like interviewing people too much. But, you know, we we got a great guest for you today. Since 1986, she's been one of the leading John Lennon researchers in the world, ultimately leading to an eight-part historical narrative series about his life. Part four, which is called uh, I Should Have Known Better, re- was released about a year or two ago. She's also the co-host of a fellow Beatles podcast called She Said, She Said, along with Lena Stagg. Jude Sutherland-Kessler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ethan. It's a delight to be here, and I think you are certifiably insane to do two shows a week. What a lot of energy you have. That's crazy. Oh, I don't have that much energy. <laughs> it's It was just a, a, a scheduling miscalculation on my part. Oh. Like, I I see someone that's like, oh, I want to interview that person. I want to do an episode with them. <laughs> And it's like, Ethan, you already have five edited ready to go. That is so funny. I can't imagine it. Lena and I try to do one a month. And, you know, just doing that by the time that you get the person to be on the show and you work out your scheduling and you prepare a script and an introduction and, you know, you dot every I and cross every T, engineer the show and then put it out on Spotify and iTunes and Instagram, blah, 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 blah. blah. It's a lot of work. It really is. I mean, I'm not on Spotify yet that or any of those other things other than YouTube, although that will be coming in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, if you do Podbean and I don't know exactly how you do your show, but they send it directly to iTunes and Spotify for you. So that helps a little bit. But any way that you slice it, having a podcast is a lot of work. And, you know, I'm just I'm just really impressed. So even if it was a scheduling error, you take credit for it. It wasn't an (laughs) error. It was just an oversight, you know. Yeah. Uh, I once booked, I think, three interviews in the same day. What? By accident. (laughs) Did you do it? Oh, yeah, I did it. That is fantastic. That's amazing. Do you remember who the three people were? Um, I don't remember. I know recently I had two in a day. That was David Bedford and Mean Mr. Mayo. Oh, well, those are two good people to have on. Yeah. I don't remember who the three for were. I think that was back in April. Wow, that that is incredible. Well, it really is a joy to be here, and thank you very much for having me in double time. Well, but let's not talk about me, because that's not what the show's about. <laughs> Unless I want to talk about myself, in which case I will. <laughs> I bet the show is about john more than anybody because he's the he's the singularly important one here yeah speaking of john you have written many books about john lennon yes yes two which were co-written with a host of distinguished authors um things we said today the beatles in context and um, a book that just came out about a year ago, which was produced by Dr. Ken Womack. And Ken Womack, yes, guest on the show. Yes, new perspectives on the Beatles. Um, and I was delighted to be able to write the opening chapter for that book. Love Ken. I've never. He is a workaholic. I've never seen anybody put out as many well-written and well-thought-out books. I mean, anybody can put out a book if you just slap it together, but he does such a superb job, and he's he's almost putting out one a year. That's it, It's amazing, especially in light of the fact that he is a dean at Monmouth University and ran the White Album Symposium. I mean, he is just incredible. I ask him he, to, to mentor me. He's the me. Energizer Bunny. He is, he is the Energizer he is. He really is. He's amazing. And his wife, Janine, is amazing, too. He, he's just a great guy all around. I have to agree with you. I, I was lucky enough to have him as the second guest on this show. And, you know, some say it's all been downhill from there. <laughs> Who was your first guest? 
Uh, that was my uncle Paul, who is a fan, a huge Beatles fan. Yes, he he introduced me to the Beatles. Ah, uh, there you go. He's the kind of a circle of life type thing. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. Well, um, they, you know, I love the take that you have on looking at the fans and how they came to know about the Beatles. And, you know, that is because without the fans, you have nothing. I mean, I know John Lennon famously said before Elvis, there was nothing. But um, it, without the fans, the Beatles would have been nothing. Mm -hmm. So in all of your research that you've done on John Lennon, and, you know, being a Beatles fan, what do you think is the biggest misconception of John in the public eye? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I, I, I guess. Pick your top three favorites. OK, number one, the fact that he made snarky comments all the time and that he was responsible for um, so much indignity in the Beatles and if you go back and look especially in 1964 when they were on the first North American tour he is credited with saying several inappropriate things such as at one point a reporter said to the Beatles do you need all of this security I don't see why you can't just fend for yourselves cities are spending a lot of money on your security why can't you just take care of yourselves and George said well, I'd like to see you try it, but you're not as tough as we are, and we're not as fat as you are. John, of course, was credited with having said that. Many other comments from the 64 tour, very snarky comments, all were blamed on John. And the minute that they were said, he knew that he was going to be credited with the comment. Similarly, when we get up to um, the Jesus controversy, you know, you can take anything that either you or I say, lift one sentence out of context and reprint it and make it look as if we said something dreadful. And what John was saying to Maureen Cleave and How a Beetle Lives was a perfectly legitimate discussion of the fact that he struggled with faith and that he was looking for faith, but that when he looked at Christianity, Jesus was all right, but it was the disciples that were thick and ordinary. And if you read any of the gospels, you'll know that is exactly the truth. They didn't get it. They never got it. They didn't even get it after the main event. And so what he was saying wasn't shocking. It was true. And he, what he was saying was that Christianity was beginning in the 1960s to fade. Church attendance was slowing down. It wasn't as popular as the Beatles. And he was saying with some regret that that was true. All right. So that's taken out of context. That one sentence is printed in date book years later and it comes down on him like a house falling in a hurricane. And he did not mean it to be disrespectful. He wasn't saying he didn't believe in God. He was raised in the Anglican church. Um, Can I just say something here? Sure. You've seen the Ruddles, right? Yes. What's going through my mind is just like, you know, I wasn't saying that we're bigger than Rod. <laughs> it's like Rod Stewart, who would not be big for another six years. I just love it. And, you know, if you watch him do that apology and he does it in every single city on their last tour and he starts off and he's very teary eyed and he's very sad and he's sad that he's added some measure of hate to the world and he's very apologetic. But by the time that he said it for the umpteenth time, why does he have to apologize in every single city at every single news conference? And by the time he said it for the bazillionth time, he's, he's mad, you know, I mean, he's tired of saying it. He's tired of groveling. He's tired of apologizing. But to me, the, the um, comments that are attributed to John that he did not say are one of the worst things about, you know, what is now referred to as fake news. And I'll give you another one. There is an old comment that um, Ringo wasn't the best drummer in, oh, in Liverpool. Oh, yes. In fact, he wasn't the best drummer in the Beatles. John never said that. Uh, Mark Lewison proved it. It was said by a comedian after the Beatles had broken up, years after the Beatles had broken up. But who did it was they- like early 80s. Yeah. Who did they attribute? 
John. And people still will fight me on that. I was on the podcast not too long ago and the person hosting the podcast said, oh no, John said it. I said, he absolutely did not say it. And so I, I guess if I had to choose one misconception, that would be it, that he was, he was constantly making rude and inappropriate comments. It's just not true. On a bit of a lighter note, what is your favorite John Lennon song? <laughs> okay. Um, if we're talking about a solo song. Solo. Yeah, okay. I, I have two. One, I absolutely love Losing You. It is raw. It is deep, jazzy, kind of rock, kind of bluesy. It's It's got everything in it. And he's, I love how angry he is and how fed up he is and how those lyrics just, they just grab you. Love that. But I also really appreciate, especially today with everything that's going on, what he's saying to us in mind games about how we've got to work together as one to push barriers and plant seeds and to together everybody together turn the karmic wheel because what we do today will have ramifications in the future and that you know he takes you through the history of all faiths and all beliefs and says, look, I don't care where you're coming from, whether you're some druid dude lifting the veil or you're after the chalice, are you calling it magic or you're calling it the dan ritual dance in the sun? I don't care where you're coming from. Love is the answer. Yes is the answer. And if we don't say those two things together, we're never going to get anywhere. It, it's such a deep song. I think if you're looking for John Lennon's philosophy, it's a thousand times better better than imagine. He's telling you what he believes and who he really is. Great, 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 great song. I I don't even have anything to add to that. That's just <laughs> No, yeah. It, it's it, amazing. Favorite song off my favorite album. Oh, I love it. Actually, well, I'll I'll retract the favorite song part. Favorite album stays. My favorite song is still Mother. Oh, love Mother. Love it. There's nothing. It, it, it's difficult to listen to, and it rips your that heart whole Plastic out. Ono Band album is hard to listen it to. It is. It is. I mean, in the best possible way. I know. I know. I just finished writing um, an article on John Solo ballads and both Mother and uh, God working class hero, mind games, all, all in there that he, John is thought of again, another misconception in the Beatles as just a rocker. And Paul is the one writing the ballads. And of course there are exceptions to that, like in my life. And if I fell, I mean, he does have, John does have some beautiful ballads with the Beatles, but when he gets to his solo career, he blossoms into a major serious ballad writer. And I said to Al Sussman, who's the executive mm -hmm. editor for Beatle fan. We love Al here. Love, love Al. Love Al. I said to him, you know, at the last Fest for Beatles fans, um, I prefer John Solo songs to the Beatles music. And he sort of looked stunned. He walked away in about three hours. He came back and said, I have a bone to pick with you. And I said, okay. And he said, did you actually say to me that you prefer John's solo music to the Beatles music? And I said, that's right. And he said, how could you even mean that? And I said, uh, beautiful boy, woman, starting over, mind games, power to the people. I, I, I could go on and on, not to mention songs like New York, um, some of the hard rocking songs that he created as a solo artist. He's like, I'm just, I have nothing to say to you. I'm stunned, but I do. I think John came into his own in the 70s and really had he had the 80s and 90s would have amazed us with what was yet to come uh now i i know in your books there's there's quite a bit of myth busting what are some of the big myths you think surrounding you know the early years of john lennon well we'll start back with 
the incident with Bob Wooler on Paul's 21st birthday when John had returned from a 14-day trip in May with Brian Epstein to Spain, to the Spanish Riviera. People call it the trip to Barcelona, but it was much, much more. Barcelona was just the last two days. They toured the entire Riviera. It was an amazing trip. They John learned so much, not only about European culture and got to see a bullfight for the first time and tasted foods he'd never tasted, but he got to enter Brian's world. And, you know, in the early 1960s, you were a homosexual. There were, it wasn't gay, it was homosexual, and it was illegal, and you could be arrested. And so it was never talked about. It was hush-hush. It was secret. And all, although all the Beatles realized that Brian was gay, no one ever discussed it. So this was his opportunity to... Uh, go to gay restaurants and gay bars and to sit with Brian and to get inside his head and to understand where he's coming from and to understand his world. And that must have been for a boy raised in Woolton, which is very upper Mm -hmm. middle class. I mean, John's in a Tudor home that overlooks a golf course. It's it's a completely hush-hush subject there. That must have Mm -hmm. been such an eye-opening experience for him. And of course, when he comes home, everybody teases him about going on a trip with Brian alone. And John at this point is married. Cynthia has just had a baby, Um, but John's no prude. And John certainly would not have thought that there was anything wrong with going on a trip with Brian, but suddenly he was being teased from every angle. And then it got worse and worse in the pubs around Liverpool and finally, at the end of June, we're talking almost two months later, when he goes to this birthday party, Bob Wooler says something to him and Bob would not tell me what he said word for word. I begged him and he said, I'm taking that to my grave. But we know that it was something like, how was the Spanish honeymoon? And John had had a lot to drink that night and he was feeling Mm -hmm. miffed because Paul was getting all this attention. John had never had a 21st birthday party with striped tents and bands playing and catered food. And, you know, his Auntie Jen and his dad had done everything to make his party special. And John was jealous and he was Mm -hmm. drunk. And when Bob said whatever he said, he hit him. All he did was, I mean, not all he did. It's bad that he hit him. I don't condone him hitting Bob, but Bob said to me, look, I totally deserved it. In fact, I kind of knew he was going to hit me, but he did hit him. Well, you follow that story through the various biographers who pick it up. First, it's that he hit him in the face. Then it's that he hit him and he broke a rib, which he did not. Then it's that he picked up a shovel and beat him with a shovel, which he did not. It it becomes so, 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 so exaggerated that it doesn't even resemble what happened. And John, of course, apologized and Bob went to the hospital to get checked out, but there was nothing wrong with him. He was released the next morning. And afterwards, when John came back to Liverpool for the Northern premiere of A Hard Day's Night, they patched things up and became friends again. Bob says, look, I had it coming. I'll tell you that. I mean, he fully admitted it to me, but that story is so stretched. And the story of Stu Sutcliffe being kicked in the head at either Latham Hall or Litherland Town Hall, um, there are people who say it's apocryphal, that it absolutely never happened. But Pete Best, who was there, will tell you that it happened. And John, who ran out into the alley and saw Stu being kicked by a group of jealous guys, jumped in with no one else to help him and started fighting these people off of his friend and got a broken finger from it. And John's finger was never the same. If you look in a lot of photos, you can see how it sticks out on an odd angle. I've talked to people who were there that night and who witnessed it and who saw Stu bleeding from the ear. Um, it's, It's absolutely real. And we could go on and on with people who don't believe that Raymond Jones, who went into NIMS and asked for my Bonnie, ever existed. Talk with Raymond Jones. He's real. He lived in Spain for many years. He really did go into NIMS. There were other people who went into NIMS as well, requesting the same record. And then the story that Brian didn't know who the Beatles were until Raymond asked for that record 
again, another myth, because not only was NIMS just a short few steps, like a half block um, from the cavern, and people were constantly coming into NIMS talking about the Beatles, but Bill Harry says that because Brian shared the same page in Mersey Beat that John had his Beatcomber article in, and they had columns side by side, Brian asked him about John and the Beatles and in fact came to his office in uh, Ronley and sat down with Bill Harry and said, I'm thinking about going down to see the Beatles and offering, offering them management. What do you think about it? So he totally knew who the Beatles were. Another myth. There are so, 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 so many. My favorite one is probably the story that people are still printing. I do not know why, but they keep printing this story about Mimi running in a bombing raid on the night that John was born to see him for the first time. Look, it's a great story. It's dramatic. It, it just really sets the stage of her careening through the streets of Liverpool with bombs falling all around her to hold her beautiful boy. But number one, you think now this is 1940 and Mimi was 36 years old. A 36 year old in 1940 was not a young woman. It, mm -hmm. it, she was middle-aged and even late middle-aged in 1940. You look at high school photos of people from the 1940s. They look 20 years older than we looked when we were in high school. Yeah, they were very, at 36, she was, she was old. She had no running shoes. She would have been running in heels. And I drove from her house in Nine Newcastle Road, where she was living with Pop Stanley at that time, to the Oxford Street Lying In Maternity Hospital. It's 3.2 miles. It's a 5K. And for her to run that would have been almost impossible. Secondly, she would have been a rested because you couldn't go out after night on the streets in Liverpool. It was against the law and somebody would have seen a woman running through the streets. She would have had to run through the Dingle and Toxteth, the two toughest places in Liverpool that have no go zones. No way a single woman by herself at night is running through the Dingle and Toxteth. And finally, there was no bombing raid that night. I went to the war office. I got the records. There was one Junkers 88 that was shot down over Eggbirth, a suburb of Liverpool, and that was it. No bombing raid. So why people keep printing that story, I'll never know, but it's just not true. Uh, there's one story about John that I love telling people, and I feel like you would know if it's true or not because, you know, of all the research you've done. Okay, my favorite story that I've heard, whether it's real or not, one day in 66, uh, early days of Apple, John Lennon takes a lot of LSD and then he suddenly realizes, I am the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And then he shows up, has an impromptu meeting at Apple just to let everyone else know. Please tell me that actually happened. It actually happened. Yes. yes. <laughs> it actually happened. And oh, to, to their credit, no one laughed at him. You know, no one made fun of him. They just said, oh, okay, well, okay, great. You know, I mean, they, they were very casual and didn't, you can see, you can imagine what was going through their heads, but they were, they knew, you know, you could tell he was strung out and look, I mean, he kind of did have that look and yeah. he, he had had that experience. You remember when he was about, oh, I guess 10 years old, when he walked into the kitchen and told Mimi, I've just been talking to God in the, in the parlor. And she was like, really? And she said, what was he doing? Oh, he was just sitting by the fireside. So look, who knows if that child. No, he was talking to Rod. Yeah, it was Rod. It was Rod. So, I mean, you know, I can see why if he really had that experience, he might think in 1966 that maybe after all he was. I don't know. But they were, yes, it's absolutely a true story. Now I want to talk about you. When did you first discover the Beatles? 
actually for an American, it was fairly early because it was pre-Ed Sullivan. Um, I was, it was in December of 1963 and I went to elementary school at Horseshoe Drive Elementary in Alexandria, Louisiana. And when I got out of the car, uh, uh, my our next door neighbor, Mr. Rogers, sweet guy who was retired when I was born, had no family, bachelor, always drove me to school every day and picked me up every afternoon and fixed my snack. It was like a, like a father and grandfather all rolled into one. And so when he dropped me off, all my friends were waiting for me. And they had a either a Swan or VJ uh, 45 of the Beatles. And they were jumping up and down and saying, okay, these are the Beatles. You've got to pick one to fall in love with. I was like, what? what? Because I was this studious, kind of nerdy kid, not at all, you know, a rock and roll girl, very, very studious. And they said, look, you've got until recess to pick one of them to fall in love with. So I was like, oh, okay. And Which one did you pick? I picked George. And they, what? Yes, George. I thought he was cute in the picture. And I could tell they were all really, really disappointed. They were like, oh, okay. So I said, well, I don't know anything about the Beatles. Which but, picture sleeve was this? This is... It's, it was a, one of the black and white ones that George was standing in sort of a cocky angle. And he looked, he looked very interesting, had that wry look that he always had on his face, that little bit of a crooked half smile, you know. And so that night I went home, I called all of their big sisters and said, tell me about the Beatles. Tell me about each Beatle. And they told me what they knew. And so the next day I came back to school and said, I've changed my mind. I'm picking John. And they all cheered and said, we knew he's the one you'd pick because he's the smart beetle and he is the leader beetle. And we knew you'd pick John. And so from that day in December, 1963, until our conversation this afternoon, still John. What was your first uh, beetle record that you owned yourself? With the Beatles. And funnily enough, my next door neighbor, Mr. Rogers, the guy that took me to school, tried to buy me my first Beatles album, but he ended up buying a record by the Liverpool Beats. Who oh, were, yeah. So I was so disappointed, but I didn't show it. I was like, oh, thank you so much. And, you know, I and I played that record for years and years and years, but my parents knew that it wasn't what I wanted. And so Santa Claus brought me with the Beatles. Was it with the Beatles or meet the Beatles? It was, it was meet the Beatles. It was meet the Beatles. Absolutely meet the Beatles. So it just, you know, I, I really, it was a huge transition because the year before that, the album that I had received was Peter, Paul and Mary. <laughs> what a difference, right? Not a bad choice. Not a bad choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Puff the Magic Track and all that. That's right. This land is your land. Yeah. So you were a Beatle fan in the 60s. What was it like hearing Revolver for the first time? Well, you have to put it into the context of who I was and, and, and still to a great part am. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. And when I was in the seventh grade, we moved to an even smaller town to the oldest city in the Louisiana Purchase, Natchitoches, Louisiana, which is the city that the movie Steel Magnolias takes place in. In fact, both of my parents are in that movie and everyone that I went to high school and college with, I was so annoying when it was in the theaters because I was like, oh, look, there's Sonny. Oh no, look, there's Connie. And people were like, shut up. But um, it's a very small Catholic conservative town and the band that I loved was the garage band Beatles you know my favorite LP is Beatles live at the BBC when they're doing all their stage songs and their cover songs and so you know I all through meet the Beatles and with the Beatles and the all the way up to Revolver they had me at hello but then Revolver comes out, and Revolver is not a very John-based LP to begin with. Um, 
is Paul based, you know. Although the strongest songs on Revolver, in my opinion, are, are John based songs. They are, but they're Tomorrow Never Knows. And, you know, it's it's the all, name of your podcast. Right. She said she said. And it's all very um, electric. I'm only sleeping. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what has happened to John? I, it took me years. I'll tell you when I started appreciating Revolver. When I read Robert Rodriguez's book, Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll, finally, and I'm an adult at that point, I finally understood what it was about. But for a, a teenager who loved She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand, this was a foreign animal. I... I was just stunned. I remember taking the needle off the record and going, well, I guess the only thing I can like on this is for no one. Maybe Eleanor Rigby, but that's Paul. I, it was just, it was really bewildering to a girl from a small town in the South. You were from a small town in the South. Uh, 1966, did your town participate in these Beetle boycott burnings? Um, I was an a teen editor for the newspaper and they came to me to ask for an article on it and I wrote of course a vehement defense of John and tried to explain what he was saying and why he was saying it and how it was lifted out of context all the things that you and I talked about a few minutes ago and we didn't have one. I hope that I played some small part in making people see that if anybody was being treated unfairly, it, it wasn't the Christians who were being treated unfairly. It was John Lennon. He mm -hmm. didn't say anything wrong. He was just giving his opinion on something that was true when he said it. And as he said, I wasn't saying better or what I was just saying more popular and that's the key phrase that people weren't listening to and that was a condemnation of people that weren't attending church not of Christianity so anyway I, I tried to do I wasn't best. knocking it or putting it down I was just saying it as a fact for England <laughs> there you go that's perfect I love it so I'm yeah. not saying we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ or God as a thing or whatever it is. You are good. Thank you. I love that. So, you didn't like Revolver very much. What did you think when Sergeant Pepper hit? Okay, well, you know, I, I, I'm just such a terrible person because I still don't like Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper is Paul, Paul, and more Paul. And it's, it's great for Paul fans. It is, it's his concept. It, I, I, I didn't understand why we couldn't have the Beatles, why we had to have a, a pretend band. I didn't understand the uniforms. And I certainly did not want to hear every single song by Paul. But, and then of course, when you flip it over to side two for Within You, Without You, I was like, oh my goodness, what has happened? It was, you know, you, at this point, I'm starting to search for songs that will take me back to the day. The, oh. You know, the Beatles were changing faster than I was changing. They were keeping up with most of the people that they were singing to. But there, there was a group of fans that were getting left behind because we weren't evolving as quickly as they were evolving. Was that slot that the Beatles held, uh, you know, taken up by other groups like the Monkees? No, I never liked the monkeys and I tried to like Herman's Hermits. I remember my bulletin board for about two weeks had a gigantic picture of Peter Noon on it. But if you love the Beatles, you love the Beatles. I think about that old quote that you like someone because and you love someone, although. And, you know, I, I love John and I did not, no matter what happened, I was going to stay on board. But every once in a while especially when you come back to the white album he's very much himself on the white album you feel like okay we're back full circle but it was a, it was a few lps before i reconnected and i just hung in there because mm -hmm. uh it would have been you know a, it would have given you whiplash saying like these guys went from help to you know 
fixing a hole. Yeah. Yeah. In less than 48 months. I know. I know. Isn't it incredible? Oh, wait, not less than 48, 24 months. I know. And you yeah. rubber sole, at least you have the transitional rubber sole. Um, and there were things there that still sounded very much like John of Yore. But um, it is, Ethan, it was, it was too fast for people who weren't up to speak. Yeah, they're geniuses. They're musical geniuses. They're literary geniuses. They are event geniuses. They are event artists. And for people who weren't geniuses and who were there for the hand clapping and the harmonica and the woos and the harmony and the camaraderie, the whole world changed. Mm -hmm. Why, in your opinion, do the Beatles still matter? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I mean, it's everything. It's that they were singing about things that were that are relevant today, as you and I were just talking about mind games and how mind games could be the anthem of 2020, that we've got to stop pulling apart and pull together. And we've got to put every bit of our spiritual power into healing all the rifts that are out there. Um, they, John spoke in, especially in his solo career, to the role of women in society and to the emergence of women onto the world stage. And that was not something that was easy for him to do because as he told Yoko in their first year together, look, women have always served me. I mean, Aunt Mimi, Cynthia, and she said, well, then there's only one thing for it, then I'll leave because she wasn't about to serve him. And he mm -hmm. began to be educated on the value of women as an equal partner and began to sing about it. Sadly, I feel like John was betrayed because when he started to write The Woman is the End of the World, yeah. he called the NAACP and asked, may I use this term? And they said, it exactly portrays what you're trying to say. It shows how women are so degraded that this is how they feel and he got their blessing and many um magazines that were considered open-minded um said to him this is we give you our backing we understand what you're trying to say and of course when the song came out then he was persecuted for it people did not understand why he was using that term but women's rights when you think about fashion and how they change fashion how they change politics how they spoke out on the vietnam war and spoke out for peace um, they changed every aspect of our lives. I just happened to see today an ad on the Bing news source that said John Lennon reading glasses. Okay, it's 2020 and you're still selling me John Lennon shaped reading glasses. They, they made us believe that bands could be more than rock and rollers they could be as Stu always urged john to be Stu sutcliffe to be an artiste to make your covers art to dress differently to behave differently to have opinions that mattered to make your work artistic and they did and then of course it's that rare phenomenon that happens only once in a thousand years or more when you look at at Concord Massachusetts and the fact that you had Alcott and Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and um Margaret Stewart and so many of the great thinkers and writers of the American Renaissance living within a mile of each other then you jump to Liverpool and you have John Paul George and Pete and Ringo Pete lives a little bit further out in West Derby but you have all of them living within just a couple of miles geniuses it, it just doesn't happen every day. The music, of course, still relevant, still beautiful, still very timely. You think when Spotify started streaming the Beatles, what, two or three years ago, they went to number one in 10 different slots. I mean, mm -hmm. the music still works. So, I, you know, it's every aspect of our lives. I'm also going to turn it around. What do the Beatles mean to you? Um my life's work, what I came here to do. 
uh, the whole reason that I'm here to write this unusual biography and to get it out there so that people can walk the streets of Liverpool with John. They can sit in ye crack and smell the, the ale and see the yellowed walls so that they can meet people that they would never have met, like June Furlong, who was the life model at Liverpool College of Art and was John's role model for becoming famous, so that they can go with the Beatles backstage at the London Palladium that Sunday night when Ringo vomited into a stage bucket because he was so nervous to go on to the Palladium because all of his life he had been told by his aunt, play the Palladium and die. You know, if you make it to the Palladium, you've done everything that you can do. That's the toppermost of the poppermost. And you're back there with him as he's so scared to go on stage. You're with them as they go to the tiny city of Walnut Ridge and land at midnight in a plane and are taken in an even smaller plane up to the Ozarks for the weekend. And the pilot of that plane pretends not to be know where he's going and he's fiddling with maps and turning them every which way so that the Beatles think he's lost in this midnight darkness and he's coming he's landing with smudge pots which he did all the time every weekend totally used to it but he's holding a flashlight in his hand and pretending like he can't see to terrify these young boys as he lands at his private landing field in the Ozarks to take them on this weekend where they have Thanksgiving dinner for the first time and drive go-karts and fish in the streams and ride horses you get to be there with the Beatles. And to me, that's what I came here to do. And it has, it's, that's what they mean to me. They mean that I get up every day and plan my day around doing research and, and writing these books. How have you been doing uh, research uh, during the quarantine? Well, I have a library, I'm looking around now, of about, I don't know, three to 500 books. I don't know, too many, far three too to many. Three and I have, you know, audio tapes and DVDs and um, all sorts of everything, you know, publications. And I, lots of people have given me all of their Beatles collections of newspaper articles. And I have a wonderful research assistant, Susie Duchateau, who helps me to sort out things that I can't find. And of course, we have the world at our fingers with the internet. Um, there is a great website called Meet the Beatles for Real. and Run Sarah, by Sarah Schmidt. She, yes. And Another guest on this show. She, listen, she has stories that no one else has. And so I'll go through, I may spend, for right now, I'm writing the chapter on Fred coming to Kenwood in early April of 1965 for his second meeting with John. He had a meeting with him at the end of March, the day that the Beatles played um, the scallop to do that pretend live concert in a hard day's night. He met with John that day in Brian's office in 1964. And then he returns by coming to Kenwood unannounced in April of 1965. And so I have about 45 pages of notes on that event from all the usual suspects, you know, Philip Norman and Tim Riley and Mark Lewison and er anyone who covered that topic, Pete Shotton, you name it, they're all in there. Well, after I get all of their information, then I always go to Sarah's website to see if she has any extra information that I couldn't find anywhere else. Most of the time she does. And through her, I've been able to meet people who were there actually witnessing the events, not telling it secondhand and get interviews with them. I try as much as possible to interview every DJ that was on every tour and talk to the stewardesses and talk to the hotel owners and talk to people that performed in the backup bands and um, just get stories from people who actually were there. Uh, you've probably talked with the marvelous Ivor Davis, but Ivor was I have not talked to Ivor Davis. Oh, he 
Ivor is one of the most delightful people on the face of the earth. I want to talk to Ivor Davis. Well, he would love to talk with you, and I'll be more than happy to introduce the two of you. He was there for both the 64 and 65 tours. In fact, he's the only journalist who was there from day one to the end, and of course was George Harrison's ghostwriter on the 64 tour, and had a special relationship with George that he'll tell you about. It's kind of a funny story. But he was one of two people he and Chris Hutchins were the two journalists with the Beatles, of course, when they met Elvis in 1965, and he had got to go inside. And there are so many things that Ivor has to say. And I, the thing that I think he most woke me up to in the research for the last book, which you should have known better, it's 1964, almost day by day, was that there's absolutely no way that the Beatles had marijuana at the Delmonico in the middle of their tour, that last day of August in 1964 with Bob Dylan. He talked to them about it that night. They made plans to meet him. He was there, he was at the Delmonico and they made plans to meet him at the Riviera Idlewild Hotel on the night after they did their last concert out in the sticks where there were no police and the concert would not have been in jeopardy because mm -hmm. it was very, very, very illegal. And I don't care how many towels you stuff under the door, you yeah. still are going to smell it. And Brian was not about to risk them losing all of the dates of the 1964 tour by being arrested. But Ivor goes through, he gives you all of the facts. He was there when Bob Dylan appeared at the Riviera Idlewild with a rucksack, as he calls it, on his back. And they he sat with Larry Kane and Art Schreiber out in the ante room and they could smell the marijuana. And then the Beatles all come out looking very dreamy and giddy and happy. And he can tell you the whole thing, but um, talking to people like that who were actually there makes all the difference, really. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions. Okay. What's your favorite Beatles song? It's a cover song. I know that sounds crazy, but it, nothing's crazy here. No judgment. <laughs> Baby, this it's is you. a judgment free zone. It's Baby, It's You, because that is John's song for Julia. And you can hear this little boy sitting in another room and hearing his aunt and uncle say, well, she's absolutely immoral. She's living with that man and she's neglecting her son. She's just, and, and it doesn't matter what they say, you know, I'm going to love you any old way. It is, he sings it to her as he does Anna. And those are two of my favorites. I, I actually never knew that those songs were sung to Julia. So many of them were, if you go back and listen almost his entire catalog. I mean, there are songs for sin, like When I Get Home and Do You Want to Know a Secret, which George sings, but John wrote. But if you go back and listen to the bulk of the songs, <clears throat> excuse me, it's about the fact that, you know, she abandoned him and it was a complicated situation. Pop Stanley did not feel that she was rearing him properly and that he would be better off with Mimi, but she left him and he never got over that. And he, for years sings about it at the microphones of the world. And he tells you point blank, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. That's who he was singing to over and over. Go back and listen to the words of so many of the songs and you'll hear it. Um, if I fell, um, I cry, I'll cry instead. It, it, all of them songs for Julia. On the flip side of that question, what is your least favorite Beatles song? Oh, please that, tell me you have one. I, I mean, yes, I absolutely do. But I'm trying to think what it might be. If you're going to say Mr. Moonlight, just don't say it. I love Mr. Moonlight. That's one of my Thank favorites. You. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> I mean, you. who can equal that opening that John does? And then when he goes into the bridge, oh, my gosh, it's incredible yeah. and what people don't realize is that mr moonlight was a cult song 
And all of the bands Merseyside did it, every one of them. And they tried to outdo each other to make it funnier and schmaltzier and to ham it up on stage. And the Beatles were one of the best groups at really hamming it up and, and making it funny and yet making it powerful. It's a great like that, song. Like that Hammond organ solo. Yeah. It, it's just hilarious. It's supposed to be, you know, he's, he's doing exactly what people wanted in the audience. You can see him just roaring over it. And it was a contest, you know, I just, I don't know, Ethan, I, um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a great fan of George's preachy songs when he gets really preachy. Um, like which songs? What, well, I mean, sort of within you, without you, sort of that. When he when he's always, you know, telling you life is short and you need to value it, and you yeah. blah blah blah, it gets rather the mystical di- songs. Yeah, it gets more didactic and sort of. And I, I love mysticism, but I don't w- really want him to tell me you better get with it. You know, it's, it's notice what you're doing, and you better believe in blah 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 blah. But I. Um, I don't know. I will. I, you know what? Those sitar songs, like those, are some of my favorite Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah. Just I, I. It could also just because I'm a fan of the sitar. I, I, I guess if I had to pick one that I don't really like, and it's what is that line in Dire Straits about? Um, I don't give a damn about a horn playing band. That's not what they call rock and roll. I'm not a big fan of got to get you into my life. I like earth, wind and fires version. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I would say I'm a fan of the Beatles version that yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's energetic enough. Yeah. I, I, I really do like the earth, wind and fire version. Yeah, it, it's from the better. awful Sergeant Pepper movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, anytime that movie comes up, I just imagine Billy Preston on top of that bandstand shooting lasers out of his fingers. Oh my gosh. But God bless Billy Preston for what he oh. did in Let It Be. You know? Oh, he saved that thing. He from being absolutely a total did. disaster. He did. He absolutely did. What's your favorite Beatles album? Live at the BBC. What's your favorite Beatles studio album? Who? Probably with the Beatles, not meet the Beatles, but with the Beatles. It, it's a good album. Yeah. I That album just gives me such a, a strong memory of like my dad, who is no longer with us. Just driving up to our cottage late at night. I had this, uh, you know, the Beatles mono CD box set. And we were listening to, uh, you know, with the Beatles. And I just remember driving up the, the highway to Muskoka, like northern or northern-ish yeah. for southern Ontario. And just, you know, all I got to do, yeah. you know, a lot of those kind of relaxing-ish songs. Like, not a second time. Yeah. Another and, Julia song. Mm-hmm. But it's that album. It may not be my favorite, but it holds like a very special place. And plus that was one of the first albums he actually bought for me on vinyl. Yeah. Well, here I, in Canada, it was, it's called Beatlemania with the Beatles. Oh, okay. So I had, I, he got me that one. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it really has, I mean, it bridges their, their garage band cavern club band feeling with who the band that's going to emerge after that is very much well by the time you get to hard day's night you're all originals mm-hmm. but it you're still getting some the feeling of cover songs as well as originals blended beautifully i just think everything on there is strong mm-hmm. what do you have a least favorite beatles album oh definitely sergeant pepper's Really? That is a controversial choice. Yeah. 
I mean, it, and I, I listened to it a lot. I did a lot it's of driving. Too much filler. Too much filler. And it's too much Paul. I mean, I, I Paul is great. He's wonderful. I went to see him in Bossier City, Louisiana, when he was here. He puts on an amazing show. There's no way that someone can go, go, go without even a sip of water for that long. He is amazing. But when I sit down and hear a Beatles album, I want to hear John Lennon. Yeah. What is your... I asked what your favorite John song was earlier. What's your least favorite John Lennon song solo? You know, even the bad songs I like. I mean, Well, Well, Well is not one of his very best songs, but even that has an earworm to it. Um, gosh, maybe um, Bless You, although I like Bless You, it's not one of my favorites. I really have a difficult time disliking any Lennon songs. Uh, you know what? We can leave it at that. Uh, what's your favorite John Lennon album? Well, I, I do love John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band. I agree with you. That was a startlingly great album coming out of the gate. Mm -hmm. But I also like, and I know nobody would ever choose this, I like Sometime in New York City as well. Uh, I like that John became very political and spoke out on political issues and had a voice. And mm -hmm. I, I really like all of them. I like his part of double fantasy. I, you know, but if I had you to don't like Yoko's part, <laughs> it's okay. What, what about two virgins, uh, unfinished <laughs> music, life with the lions. Come on. I, you know, I mean, there are everything. There are good things on every LP. I get those albums all confused. I think it might have been the wedding album. Which one was the one with the song that was the entire side of an album where it was John and Yoko just saying each other's oh, two, names? Oh, uh, two virgins says, you know, is almost a complete one. Yeah, I have a, a cocktail napkin that has the host frowning and saying to his wife, honey, put on the Yoko Ono music, they won't leave. And Two Virgins is definitely the album to get people to vacate. Uh, I played that whatever song it was where John and Yoko were just saying each other's names for like 10 minutes. And I played it for my friend and he didn't speak to me for a day. <laughs> I... <laughs> for someone who could be so talented and write something, even John Sinclair, if you start singing John Sinclair, you can't stop. It's with you. And now it's going to be with both of us for the next 24 hours. But for someone who could write songs with that much power, he could, he could put some garbage out if he wanted to. Well, uh, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Yes. Yes. I'm sure How, someone loves that song. Which is why <laughs> the, the original vinyl copies, well, the British ones go for like thousands of pounds. Right. Not the American ones. Cause those were bootleg to hell. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess it's worth something to someone. Yep. Although it'll probably just go sit on a, a shelf. Gather dust. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know what? I, I see that album for sale a lot. I have never bought it. Like, it's always in that, like, higher price range where I also see things on the wall like, oh, I could get George's electronic sound. Yeah. That's, that's marginally better. No, it's way better. <laughs> it's still not great, but it's not two virgins. It's not someone chanting names. Yeah, I, um... I would rather buy the bootleg recording of, um... John's birthday party when he starts singing what is the rock and roll song that he starts with is it bebop alula then he goes into like 20 different rock and roll songs from that is that and the one where he also goes into uh uncle albert yes it shows they're all connected they all yeah. up because it's true you know if you do that standard rock and roll progression you can go through a catalog of songs mm-hmm so, what is your least favorite John Lennon? Wait, did I already ask that? Yes, you did. Okay, well, my brain's just kind of shut <laughs> off here. My Again, I have four brain cells, and none of them are speaking to each other. <laughs> and so this is kind of the end result. This is the end product. I love it. 
Anyways, now it's my favorite part of the show where I got to turn it over to you. What do you want to plug? Oh, well, the John Lennon series, of course, at johnlennonseries.com. Uh, the it is going to be actually nine volumes all nine total. volumes i yes. retract my previous statement nine it, volumes for john's number nine i'm working on volume five shades of life but the first four books are out there uh the first one should have been there talks about all the people who should have been there in john's life and weren't um for various and sundry reasons, but it takes you from his birth up to December the 10th of 1961 when Brian offered them that loose managerial agreement and the whole group has come together. Brian is there, Paul is there, George is there, Pete is there. They know Ringo, but he's not part of the band yet. Um, and John says, right, manage us then, and then immediately regrets it because he is convinced that Brian is going to change them, that he he's already, Brian's already told them that they have to stop throwing sandwiches at the audience. They have to stop swearing at people in the audience. They have to stop ending a song when they want to and jumping into another song. They're going to have to wear suits. They're going to have to have their hair cut. If everything John realizes is going to change and he wonders if he hasn't made a terrible mistake by agreeing to this. And that's the end of book one. It's the Liverpool formative years. Second one is Shivering Inside. That's 61, 63, where they are hottest firecrackers in Hamburg and all over the UK, but virtually unheard of in the United States, except for a few DJs who are brave enough to play the records. But Capital has rejected and, them. You and know. a ragtag a ragtag band of record labels that just kept putting stuff out for no. That's one. right. That's right. Exactly right. R.I.P. Swan, Tolly, and V.J. Yeah. May you exactly. rest in peace. But thank heavens they did that for those of us who got on board early, yeah. you know, and then I will just say they yeah. were on Capitol in Canada right from the start, right from Love Me Do. So really? Na, 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 na. Yeah, there you guys are always on the right side. Yeah. We got know? proper Beatles albums. Yeah, and had some of the most exuberant in 64 when they come to Canada. Oh, my goodness. Those were some shows. You talk about fans. They Madison, oh, no, I almost said Madison Square Garden. No, a Maple Leaf Gardens. Back when, it, back when it still existed. Now it's yeah. just a, a, a grocery store. Loblaws. Oh. They still I have the center that. ice. Uh, they still have a little marker for all the hockey games. You know, when the Maple Leafs oh. play. Well, they were certainly appreciated in Canada. There's no doubt about that. And of course, in John's solo years, he was respected as a voice for peace in Canada when many, many other nations wouldn't listen to him. And so we we owe Canadians a great debt. They were always on the cutting edge of, of Beatle fandom. So, well, you know, I... The, the bed-in part two happened in Montreal. And there you go. And then there was the uh, Live Peace in Toronto album. Just, yeah. I, I, I'm going to go off on a little tidbit. This is how you can tell if someone is not Canadian, how they, Jude, would you do me a favor and say the name of the city uh, that it was live in blank? No, I'm not going to fall into that. You tell me okay. what's the correct way to say it. Okay. Well, people from, you know, Southern Ontario, the correct way to say it is you don't say the, you don't say the second T it's just Toronto. Toronto, really? See, yeah. I've always said Toronto. We have many cities like that in Louisiana. There's a town, B-E-N-T-O-N. -E and if you don't say Benin, they laugh you off the streets. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just lived in a small town in Louisiana that had a street that looked like it was Louisville. And that's what I said. And someone said, oh, you, you're not from here, are you? I said, well, I just moved here. They said, it's Louisville, Louisville, like Louisville. Elvis. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> is, so. is every, has everyone in Louisiana had a stroke and no one has been alerted? They're pretty much. Uh, people on yeah. Louisville. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Not entirely dissimilar to what I sound like in my early morning interviews. Exactly. Me too. I yeah. was watching Downton Abbey last night. Have you watched it? I know of Downton Abbey. Well, my, the, mom, my mom loves it. 
Oh, it's it's fabulous. And the head butler, the people were laughing at breakfast and he looked at them very disdainfully and said, there's something rather European about lightheartedness at breakfast. <laughs> You're not to be lighthearted. So there you go. Anyways, John Lennon, book three. Huh? Book three, 1963. I mean, that's that pivotal year when they do that London Palladium and the Royal Command performance where John says, you know. They were you know, big everywhere you. except America. Everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. They do that first Christmas record and Cynthia finally moves to London to be with John. They're an emperor's gate. And it is it is the pivotal year. It ends, that book ends when they find out that they're going to America, that they've they've hit number one. Brian's been knowing since November. He's booked the tour, but he's told them that they're not going unless they get a number one, and they're in Paris for those first few weeks of 1964 and find out that they do have, in fact, a number one in America, and they have that gigantic pillow fight and begin to make their way to the States. From and, those uh, Harry Benson pictures, uh, right? That's exactly right. Exactly right. And then the last book is 64 and all of them, I mean, from Hard Day's Night to their first world tour, the nor first unbelievable North American world tour, writing Beatles for sale and putting that out in just a matter of days and going on that long, desultory UK tour, another Christmas record, another Beatles Christmas show. It was the year of Beatlemania. So that one was so much fun to write and so many firsthand interviews with everybody that was on all of the tours. So that was that was a joy. Whoa, I just, my, I just had a, like, my mind just kind of blanked out for a second. <laughs> no, it says four cells. Uh, no, normally I would edit things like that out, but, you know, I'm feeling risque. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave that in and just show. Leave my, it in. Leave yeah, it in. You know, the wheel, uh, the gears turning in my head in real time, trying to figure <laughs> out how to segue to the next thing. I love it. And when you do your editing, please make me sound less Southern. You can, uh, let's see, give me an Irish accent. That'll be great. <laughs> you know what? With computers, that will probably someday happen. All right. I, I'm all for it. All right. Anyways, Jude, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. I have loved every second of it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And, um, you know, fans, that's what it's all about. I, I, I know John got a little bit aggrieved at one point because the fans were demanding, you know, that he do this and do that and do this and do that. And he said, if I go down to a florist shop and I buy the man's flowers, does that mean I have to do everything he, he says for the next 20 years? So I know that we put a lot of demands on them, but in retrospect, when John was asked to sign autographs for people, he never, ever said no. He always stopped and always signed and was always kind to people. And I think he knew, as, as we all know, that the fans were their lifeblood and that they do matter. So um, a joy to be on Fans on the Run. Thank you. And everyone else out there listening, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.